26 in the afternoon you are now listening to pretty much the tail end of freeform with dj electronica the last set finished with the most fitting song called only for a while by rochelle then therapy part one by charles afton then bog by atomic jefferson then i am with you by hajime yoshizawa then The Highway to the Sun by Alien Number 613, and that set started off with Nowhere by Miro. I hope you have enjoyed the music as much as I have enjoyed playing it. Please stay tuned for The Living Writers Show, which will begin promptly at 4.30. But in the meantime, how about some music? I shall now leave you with a song called Ottoman by Nucleus. Enjoy, everyone and have a good rest of your day. They met one day in a summer storm Her senses told her that it was wrong
Good afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Today's scheduled guest, Uum Akhtan, was unable to make it for a live interview due to a delay, a delayed flight from New York. T will be taping an interview with him for rebroadcast later this summer. I'd also like to announce that Uum Akhtan will be reading at Shaman Drum Bookshop tomorrow evening at 7 p.m. That's Thursday, June 12th. Uum Akhtan will be reading from his new book and answering questions from the audience. This afternoon, we will be rebroadcasting a spring favorite interview that T. Hetzel did with Richard Price, screenwriter and author, discussing Richard Price's new book, Lush Life. Good afternoon. Um, you're listening to Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, Richard Price. Richard, welcome. Thanks for coming on, Living Writers. Oh, thank you. And um, you, that was, I was surprised. I thought King Crimson was going to kind of bring us in on this, like, huge, uh, I don't know what I was expecting. <laughs> but there was a little, I, uh, there was a solemn King Crimson moment. <laughs> so, yeah, a little lugubrious there. <laughs> But uh, no reflection on us right now. At I hope this not. Um, well, Richard Price, this is a pre-recorded. Uh, this is pre-taped, and Richard's in town uh, with his latest novel, Lush Life, uh, reading tonight at Shaman Drum at 7 p.m. But hopefully, a lot. Of, hopefully, the listeners have managed to catch you. Um, but uh, are you going? What are your What are your upcoming cities? Because you're in the midst of the book just tour. Close your eyes and think of any city at random, and just keep going for about three minutes. And the answer is yes. Really? It, so this it, is it's a barrage. So so they've got you hitting like 20 cities. You'd say. So close to yeah. You're you're a really big deal, Richard Price. <laughs> Well, you you're like you it, don't need it to is tell my me eighth that novel. I never had, a, you know. I you know. I think this one's taken off like none of them have ever taken off. I just feel like something caught up to me in a good way, which probably means I have some kind of fatal disease that I don't know about yet to balance <laughs> things out. But it's it's. Um, it's it's good. So this is different. Okay, because I was thinking this was maybe like this the swelling, the surge that you experienced ever since your first novel, The Wanderers. No, I don't. I don't surge much. No. Um, I, I had Surfing. A, I had a surge about ninety two, and now I'm uh, double surging. <laughs> okay, and speaking in code. <laughs> um, yeah, because your first novel, The Wanderers, that was. Um, you were 24 when that was published. So, yeah, um, 1974. Uh, did you did you write that when you? Because I saw in your your history you were uh, you went to Columbia for an MFA, and that was that was when there weren't there wasn't that proliferation of the MFA programs that, no, that I we was, see now. Uh, um, well, I started writing it while I was an undergraduate at Cornell, uh, but I, you know just so. Just trying to remember things in the Bronx because I was never really going to go back there, and so you get that urge to like make it all crystallize. Why did you know that at that time, even? Because who on earth goes to Cornell and then decides to go back to the Bronx? Um, it's just no. It, was, it wasn't about if I liked it or disliked it. I just you know you just get that feeling like life is going to take you further and further away, and so the place was only going to exist in your memory, and then you get this desire to to like I said, to make it crystallize because what you can't remember is gone. And so the whole, it's like your life is gone, your previous life. Um, also, what, you know, I felt like such a fish out of water uh, coming from a housing project in the Bronx to, 
you know, an Ivy League school. And what happens sometimes is when you get kids that come from very kind of rough backgrounds or coming from a long, long way, they tend to act more on campus more Bronxy, right, right, uh, than they ever did in the Bronx. Can you give they us develop- an example of like what that would? What does that even mean? Like, w- flashback to yourself on Cornell's campus. Yeah, you know, you know, <laughs> you, you just you just sound more rockyish, you know, and you know, speak more through your sinuses, and you know, sort of dumb yourself down, um, you know. So, like, I I, I know a guy- on the surface. Yeah, but it's like this anxiety of like you're just trying to say I am because you're so overwhelmed by everybody that, you know, I'm sure this happens with uh, I know there was a guy who's a Faulkner scholar at a university I taught taught at uh, upstate New York. And the guy was from Mississippi and he sounded like one of the Snopes. And it turns out that in Mississippi, his father was the headmaster of a private school. And I'm sure he was much more cracker. You know, at this university than he ever was in Mississippi. Like growing up, yeah, he just had to take that idea. Well, there's so much of this other identity that's being sort of pushed at you when you're at this a a university setting, even if it's not Ivy League. Well, you know, university is just one thing. When you move on, wherever you are, it's not what you're used to, and you and you get freaked out a little bit. I remember uh, when The Wanderers was published, it was all about these kids in in a housing project, and uh, you know, people got sort of overreacted to it because, you know, there's a little violence in it, but it was like nobody was writing about housing projects. So, you know, everybody got huffy and dramatic. Right. Where's the drawing room? Where's when's tea served? But um, (laughs) it it sort of like made it even worse for me to like lose that sort of like artificial Bronx persona because it's now being reinforced by this book. And I I do remember uh, about six months after the book came out doing a reading somewhere in New York City. Uh, you know, in my heavy Bronx accent that never existed. And some guy in the audience came up to me. He's a middle-aged guy, looked like, a, you know, a laborer or you know, union labor guy. And he says, so you went to Cornell, didn't you? And I said, well, yeah. He said, that's amazing. You know, I'm starting to smile, you know. And then he says, because my daughter goes to community college and she speaks better English than you. You know, and so and he, he just called sort of you looked, on sort of that Yeah, but facade. it wasn't like I was putting it on. He, he was, yeah, it was like a, you know. Who are you patronizing? Right, right. But he couldn't understand the layers that made you do... Yeah, but that's... So what did you do then? I couldn't understand the layers that was making me do that. Well, you know, it was kind of like, well, that's a keeper. You know, um, here I am. Uh, uh, it's 25 years, 30 years later. I'm telling you the story. So I guess it's a keeper. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, yeah you, you think you go away for schooling, but then you come home to get Yeah, my parents were always like, you know, we sent you to this college and you come back. You sound stupider than when you left. There's no such word as ain't. Look it up in a dictionary. It ain't there. I said, well, can we retread a little bit? Here? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, since let me uh, just read the, the short bio from the back of Lush Life. Uh, Jeff, just out with FS and G. Um, Richard Price is the author of seven novels, including Clockers, Freedom Land, and Samaritan. He has received an Academy Award in Literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters and shared a 2007 Edgar Award as a co-writer of HBO's miniseries, The Wire. So um, this is going to... Just bear with me here, Richard, for mm-hmm. a moment. The, um, the Academy Award in Literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters... Uh, what is that? A problem with that? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, but what does that? What does that mean? That that award? I'm. You you don't. There's no red carpet. You don't get to wear a Balenciaga gown. See, that's what I was. Nothing to do with cleavage. It's you know. Damn. It's 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 just like you know they give out annual awards for you know it's not the same as you are now a a member of the academy. It's just a recognition award um, that they give out. And, and is there a party so you actually go somewhere, but you're not in the well, gown? <laughs> well, you sort of sit around with a bunch of old fusty people and, you know, they, a couple of guys in bow ties that, whose books you've been reading for 35 years. Mm. And uh, everybody's, you know, having a vodka tonic and a little plastic cup, you know. 
it's you know it's not like wacky. Right, right. The elbows are slightly out. Everyone's, yeah. huh? I looked up just for kick, kicks the academy, and I was sort of. I was, it looks like it's something like for writers. It's like being in the Supreme Court. You get appointed for life. Yeah. Um, and they um, they look mostly like men. Like, <laughs> not to be all well. Well, the males are yeah, definitely, and, but. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I didn't do a head count. Yeah, you didn't. Okay. Some people were wearing gowns. No, I'm just kidding. But that's really, that's amazing though. Academy Award in Literature. For, um, but I also actually really, and you're probably sick of talking about your awards because you've, you've, like you've said, this is, this is your eighth novel. And, and so you've kind of probably had accolades being, you're, you're no stranger to them, but this 2007 Ed, Edgar Award, uh, that, that, that seems that like was, a really big deal. Well, as that well. was a group award given to the writers. It was a, in the best dramatic TV series, uh, The Wire won. So it was about five, five or six guys, you know, bumping into each other. And uh, we also won the Writers Guild of America award for dramatic TV writing. The Wire deserves that. You guys finally, you deserve yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. The thing about The Wire, the thing that finally made The Wire catch on, is the. Uh, the the rise of the uh, season DVD because the show was just impossible to watch an hour a week and if you miss a week if you miss you know it's you know it's it's it's, it's a very slow moving Byzantine show and so people kept hearing how good it was but you know but what, if they just kind of ducked into one episode but what you they really weren't... have to do is you got to pop a you got to pop a DVD in there and sit there for 4 hours and then you'll get it and that's what happens that's what when yeah. i've been ta- is that what people tell you happens to their experience if they haven't been well everybody it? i know who who's come up to me it they they were all saying wow i went out and i got the DVD for season 1 and you know i sat there for 20 hours and mm-hmm. da, 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 da. And all the college kids uh, are really into it. So, like my kids, that one of them is in college, one is just out. I mean, I had published eight books and and written ten movies. So, and I've written five lousy episodes at a wire, and all of a sudden, I'm like, cool. <laughs> Finally, Dad. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's no, that's really great. Those. Which episodes did you did you write, Richard? Which ones were you? Well, I mean, I don't know how to describe them. I mean, oh, two, okay. two for one year, two for another year, and, oh, okay. and one for this year. Uh, yeah, I guess it doesn't. Go make sense to go into the story. Yeah, like, was say, it in well, the docks? Well, was it episode four hundred three, five hundred seven? You know, <laughs> was it in the schools in the docks? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. I mean, the most memorable one I think was in season four, where it's a homeroom scene, and one of the kids flips out and slices another girl's face uh, after she's being teased. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was like the third episode I wrote. But I mean, it really is like a, a team effort. It's sort of like you know uh, an intellectual assembly line. You know, the the whole writing of the show, it's like all these episodes that are so complex. Right, right. Everybody's taking turns writing them, so you really got to be in lockstep what if, you're writing. Excuse me, if you're not in the, at the helm, um, lockstep, oh no, um, if you're not at the helm, does that mean you're also, you're still involved as the storyline's progressing? Or were you just in the room for those five and you were at the helm for those? Well, I, the I was thing, just the wondering thing is everybody, everybody who, like Lehane and Pelicanos, uh, whoever came in as guest writers... You know, it's in Baltimore, so you're gonna go just da- just you're gonna go down there from New York or wherever you're coming from, New England, and you'll go down there for two or three days just for the story meetings on your specific episode. But you'll have have read the episodes that have been written leading up to yours, because everybody's got to set up perfectly what went before and then what goes after. And there might be people that have to kind of touch into the story because they're Yeah, and then you'll the you'll write stuff in one episode and then they'll realize it's too early for this type of incident. So some of your stuff is going to get pushed up and sometimes stuff that they had in the previous episode, they had too much and so they're going to have to shove it into yours. You know, it's like check your ego at the door. But but I guess in certain projects that's okay. Like this one seems like you have how you said it's an intellectual assembly line. It's that's still something like Yeah, I wouldn't be interested the, the in doing this smarts. if it wasn't for the people that I was doing it with. You know, and and it, I mean it was just a damn good show. I mean, there's nothing like it. Um and I just wanted to be part of it. But you certainly don't do it for the money and you don't do it for the glory. Well, you do, sort of. Yeah, because now all the glory, like you said, it's finally like the wire's time or something. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm getting a free ride off my participation in the wire because it gets mentioned in all the book reviews and everything. Oh, okay. That's great. Well, well no, well, it's, um, 
But it, I guess because you wanted to be part of the project because something because it it sounds like a perfect fit for something that you are well, extremely what, what good happened, at. Well, what happened was is David Simon, who is the creator. I met him in 1992 when I published Clockers, and he published Homicide: A Life on the Streets, and uh, we had the same editor, John Sterling, and the editor set us up for a play date. You know, and uh, <laughs> it was the night of the Rodney King verdict. Oh. And we were in New York, and they were rioting in Jersey City. So we went over to Jersey City to see what was happening. Uh, and that was our first play date. And so, you That's know, we've, monumental. Been, we've been sort of long-distance friends since then. And he told me that The Wire was based on clockers. You know, um, you know that was the, the starter's yeast. You know, but he took it way, way uh, up high-low. I mean, I, I barely got out of the projects and clockers. He took it all the way to the state legislature and city hall and and the media all and, the layers of the game yeah i mean he really he really got into the institutions um and so i was kind of honored to uh you know have you know been an inspiration for that but when he asked me to come on as writer i was a little nervous because i think i assumed i think he thought that i knew an awful lot more than i did because i put everything i had into clockers and then he just rocketed out of there and thought I had all this in reserve that I didn't write about. So I was really nervous about, you know, you know, coming up. And is is and so is this like maybe in the involvement in the the wire is this also sort of like uh, why lush life also came into your to be No, as I well, mean it, it no that that's a tail wagging the dog. Oh, okay. I mean, I write the way I write. Right, you right, know, right. and <laughs> if, if if I if I wound up writing the the wire for a couple episodes that had no effect on you know my long distance writing because i mean i I was he asked me because that's what i write about it wasn't like wow now i learned about all this stuff it's like i knew about this stuff you know from the jump no i didn't mean i didn't mean that uh richard i i meant like just that um going back into the like going to this world that because you said you investigate it like that was the, the subject of matter of clockers, and then mm-hmm. this is really with the cops and with the projects, and um, but maybe we can talk about collaborative work versus the novel and the solo when we after okay. the break. Is Very that good. okay? You're listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We'll be right back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us today on Living Writers, Richard Price, he's in town uh, with his latest novel, Lush Life. I'm T. Hetzel, and I'm so pleased to have you here, Richard. Yep, I'm still here. (laughs) You're still here. I know. You didn't leave after the first 15 minutes. (laughs) So far, so good. I'm knocking on my head. Um, So we were talking a little bit about uh, the collaborative nature of work for the the wire and and right. and 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 probably screenwriting because you've been you've you've done screenwriting as well 
Richard. So is that similar or is that a completely... See, I don't know. Screenwriting is... I mean, writing for The Wire sort of transcends, you know, writing for a screen because it is The Wire and it is David Simon and it is sort of like, you know, it's like a real peer effort. Um, And, you know, you do feel the show is kind of noble. And we're getting paid peanuts, so there's very little pressure, you know, to make... Uh, the, you know the studio happy, and is that because they're, you're the writers? Because it's an HBO. It's like a heavy hitting HBO series. So to me, was. it's like, well, yeah, I know it's over. <laughs> I can't believe that. Anyway, um, but that seems strange. Like, is that so? That's probably why the writers went on strike. Because if you guys aren't getting no, no, it's, no, it, we weren't getting any money because it wasn't making any money. I mean, it never. We, you know, we never got nominated for an Emmy or anything like that because not enough people saw it. You know, and that's why it took four years before we got recognition. Um, uh, but, you know, screenwriting is a whole different thing. I mean, that's a job. You know, I mean, that's, that's the uh, show dogs you raise to feed your kittens. Um, you know, that's just about money. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll take a job. It's, it'll be an interesting project. I'll write as, as well as I can because my name is on it. Mm-hmm. But what happens once I turn in that first draft is completely out of my control. I mean, it has to do with the alignment of the stars, uh, both movie stars and Cos- Cosmo stars. And it's got to do with budgets. It's got to do with who's available. Um, it's got to do with so many things that have nothing to do with the writing, whether something goes all the way. And once something goes all the way, it has nothing to do with the writing, whether it's going to be a good movie or not. So that one, I feel like this is how I got to pay my bills. I'm going to do that type of writing. I mean, The Wire was the opposite. I mean, they were literally paying me peanuts. And, um, but, you know, I but mean. But you care. But you care, you know. And it, it, it's not all that time consuming. And it's worth it. You, want, you know, you want to go to heaven. So. <laughs> That's true. By being part of The Wire, I think you definitely have a few steps in that direction, Richard. Um, well, not too soon, I hope. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, not to wish it on you. It's a stroke of good good fortune with this this book. Although it does sound so rigorous with their their the tour. So, but I, you'll get through it. You'll get and and maybe you'll become some people listen in Seattle. So maybe you'll you're heading out there so they can show up and. and well, we're not in important. Seattle now. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. Wait, my, you're my, in Michigan, my, Dorothy and Toto. <laughs> I'll, I'll be Toto. All right, you can be whichever. Okay, what are we saying? Let's get back to the writing. <laughs> but, but seriously, folks. <laughs> we need some symbols. Um, but but the so so what about the the writing of the novels then because with this collaborative writing it seems like because you cared about mm-hmm. D- David Simon's project and the people you worked with you respected their their methods of working and their writing um, how how is it so how is it to go back into your own rhythms where you're just you're solo well in the, writing it's the difference the between screenplays and novels is screenplays is like just going out and hope, hoping you can get sex. You know, novels, okay. it's like falling in love, you know, and you might actually marry it. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, novels take forever for me. I take I just five years between books. And it's the only thing I'm going to write, including The Wire, where I'm in control of the final product. I mean, nobody can, there's not one word that's not mine that I didn't choose to put in a book. Whereas in screenplays, like I said, it's like, when, you know, it's like buying a lottery ticket. Maybe you win, maybe you don't. Uh, and The Wire, you know, it's, it's, through, it's filtered through the sensibilities of, of the creators. But, you know, this is, novels are what, I, what I'm about. You know, and, you know, they, if you, if you work out the advance against the man hours that you put in or the person hours, um, <laughs> or, or, or the uh, Native American. I don't know. Right, right. I you was know. like, that's very no, nice I, of you I, to no. come back, but don't worry. I, I was being facetious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm getting paid about half what a plumber would make writing writing this novel. You well, know. The, you know, they've got unions that are but, working. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but well, this, this, you know, like having a book, is there's nothing quite like it. I mean, for me. Well, I mean, you've this, made this it. Is what you've I, created it. This, this is, is not... what I was put on earth for, so. Yes. So what else could, yeah, there's no other choice. Like, it's not as if yeah, you could do it. Yeah, you know, I'm tired of being a sex god. I just, you know, there's nothing left. You know, so. <laughs> Richard uh, Price starts to say no. <laughs> no. You well, can uh, catch my act in hot pants near the Holland Tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> There's a show on Fridays here called Hot Pants, like or Tight Pants. Tight, well, well, anyway, I'm sure your hot pants are tight. What am I saying? Again, I have no idea. these divergences get back to the writing. Right? Well, you said five years between books, Richard. Does that mean that? Um, does that mean? Can you just not to be? Well, I am. I'm, I'm being breaking it apart here. Does that mean it's you're, you're within the book and then it goes to the editor after five years? Are you talking about, I haven't looked at the publishing history of the eight, but no, what he, is it? Here's, here's been the recent process of, of the Clocker, Samaritan, Freedomland, and this one. It's like, I have learned through screenwriting that not everything I write has to be based on my autobiography. Thank God. You know, <laughs> autobiography and talent are not Siamese twins. And you can go, it's a big world out there. And you can go out there. And this is especially important for, I think, younger writers. You know, you don't have to, like, stare at your navel until you get hit by a bus. You know, it's like, just embrace the world. I mean, learn about something, for God's sake. You know, uh, whatever you write's autobiography anyhow, because, you know, what what the characters do... And what they do when they hit a fork in the road is informed by what you would do. So, I mean, it's all autobiography, yeah. but that doesn't mean it has to literally be about you and your therapist. Um, Although there is an HBO miniseries about yeah, <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, that was inevitable. <laughs> yeah. But actually, that's supposed to be pretty good. Um, anyways, so w- w- the, what I do is there's something I want to write about. Like in this case, A Lush Life, is, I've, I've always wanted to write about the Lower East Side of New York. Uh, for maybe 25 years. Mm -hmm. And I just, because my family started out like just about every other family in America, Uh, but not in a sentimental way. But, I mean, it was a really, it was a rough, rough place. You know, had the highest population density in the world in 1900, the Lower East Side. In the world? In the world, that one neighborhood. So we're talking Calcutta, like any of the places that you think of now. Wow. And uh, if... You, you know, you, you got off the boat at Ellis Island, you know, you staggered into the neighborhood, and from the moment you put your bags down, you try to figure out how to get the hell out of here. And I think it's the most important neighborhood in American history in terms of the people that started there and came out and rose to positions of power or success, uh, both uh, legal and illegal. Um, and now you're showing the shift in the population that's yeah. in the Lower East Side. Well, what I was going to say, the, the Chinese yeah. immigrants, right, renting yeah. a plank. Well, what I was going to say, what a, that's how it started out, and everybody knows, you know, in a sentimental way about, you know, this is where it all started for the Eastern Europeans, and then g- gradually, say by World War II, it was, you know, mostly Hispanic and African American, and some of the you know, old guard Jews were still there. Uh, I'd say by 1970 up to 1990, it became the most dangerous neighborhood in New York City. It was just a drug, drug uh, souk. Is that the the time period for the book? No. Too? When is it? Is it mid 90s? Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh, then what happened in, in in the early 90s is Giuliani came to power, America's mayor. Um, you're lucky. He's now New York's ex mayor, and that's it. Um, very lucky. Um, and he, he had this thing called Giuliani time, which means you lock up anybody who looks at your cross-eyed. That and the fact that real estate needed a place to go. Real estate's the greatest crime fighter in the world. And uh, so the neighborhood was transformed between active policing and trying to create a niche market in real estate. The place went from the most dangerous area in the world to like uh, Montparnasse for yuppies. You know, and so you have all, you know, for the last 10 years, you have all these MFAs that are just, you know, coming into the Lower East Side like people used to go to Berkeley, except there's no politics. It's all, you know, and, you know, you know, bright people who are going to live forever and, you know, from comfortable backgrounds. And that's what the Lower East Side has become. But when I went down there, that's what I knew I was aware of. But what I didn't realize is about six separate worlds. You know, it's, it looks more like afterbirth than rebirth. I mean, you've got the, the what you said, the um, huge population of Fujianese Chinese, uh, a lot of which are, are illegal. And they're living cheek to jowl like, like the Jews lived 110 years ago in the same, you know, uh, squalid kind of desperate measures. Next to them, you'll have a flaw through... Um, with two people in it that goes for $2 million in the adjoining building, same contractor in 1880. Then you have, you know, the Labo Emers, you know, the, the young kids that are going there now. But you also have the housing projects, which are pretty much immortal. They're not going anywhere. So you got a whole big 
bunch of housing projects. And, and you is got that like Lemlicks. Yeah, in, I in called this? it the Lemlicks, Lem- but okay. uh, it, but in real life, it's the Smith houses and the Baruch houses. And you also um, have the Orthodox Jews, who, like the Chinese, are in a world of their own. And um, man, it's uh, what I try to do in this book is write when worlds collide, because these people are uh, completely invisible to each other. Um, they, they occupy the same physical space and they're not hostile to each other. They, they just don't see each other. Right. And you even have one of your, one of the most, one of the, the pivotal characters actually even, um, thinks about thinks about this reflects on how he never knew being invisible was a superpower and it was his super well, so yeah, that's well, like well, that maybe was, why you have that, that was like there. an inv- yeah but i mean it's it's like you know it's like, it's like these young comfortable kids you know the only time they interact is it's three in the morning two kids from the projects get a gun they go into ludlow street or one of the you know streets with a lot of bars and clubs and you know they flash a gun in front of in front of two kids that were bar hopping and, you know, they make a scary noise or it sounds scary. And they assume the kids, the, you know, the people that they're holding up are just going to fork over whatever's in their pocket and everybody can have Chinese food. But what happens is that these kids that are 3 a.m. coming down the street and all of a sudden they're braced by, by two kids and a gun. You know, first of all, they're bombed. Second of all, they've, they've lit, led very sheltered lives. And, and sometimes TV, they think they're TV in a and movie. movies, right? Yeah, sometimes they think they're in a movie. So rather than do the appropriate thing, is which is like sort of look down, give them the wallet, and live to fight another day, you know, they go all John Wayne on these kids, and these kids have never. What's wrong with this person? You know, and next thing you know, a shot gets fired because they're scared too. Is what well, I don't know if they or... poor babies. They're the oh, ones no. with the gun, you know. <laughs> yeah, but right. um, no, but I mean, it's like they th- they thought all you had to do yeah. is go boo with a gun, and you got Chinese food, right? You right. know, but you, they didn't count on this idiot, you know, right. uh, giving them a bad movie line and then moving, stepping towards them, and next, you know, and you get a fight or flight reaction. Everybody runs in opposite directions except the dead guy. Mm-hmm. You get headlines for five days because tabloid headline, the, 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 the most beloved victim is aspiring actor or aspiring at which means waiter, waitress, you know. And, uh, you know, the beauty and the beast, you know, stars in his eyes came from Iowa and found death on Orchard Street, you know. And, by, and day six, everybody goes back to their respective worlds and starts ignoring each other again. Which you also show in the book, yeah. where the Maddie, detective Maddie Clark is trying to fight that. He's trying to put the case down, and he's trying to keep it, keep yeah. it going. I mean, the reason, why, the, the, the reason why I made it, uh, uh, I centered this book around a homicide is not, not because I don't, I'm not a detective writer. I don't really care about genre fiction. Uh, frankly, I think it's embarrassing except for the guys who can transcend it. Um, But if you have a very complex landscape, like I just described, it's six separate worlds, I was trying to find a way to write about it that didn't feel like repetage, that didn't feel like a travelogue. Mm. And, you know, uh, a murderer is a lazy man's way through a plot. All you got to do is follow the investigation, and it'll give you an automatic... Spine and spurs off. Of yeah, that I mean, spine. You, you just you just ride that horse straight through the landscape, and everything they do makes sense chronologically and narratively. And because investigations will take you here and there and here and there, but it's always pulled back to this central urge to find out what happened. And before you know it, whether you found out who did it or not, you've basically seen this whole world in a very streamlined way. Right. I'm so glad you said that, Richard, because I was thinking about the murder as as the the use of the murder, because we sort of see what happens at the very beginning, you know, rather than trying to solve it. But but let's come back. We'll take a short break. You're listening to Living Writers today. Richard Price. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Richard Price with Lush Life. Um, thanks to Jesse Johnston for his ever uh, ever artful engineering. Um, so, Richard, we've been talking about Lush Life now for a while, so maybe we should give the listeners a chance to hear some of it. Well, I I, I could read a short passage which describes. Um, one of these spontaneous street shrines that go up on the sidewalk and at the spot where the kid was murdered. And maybe this description of the shrine will give you a sense of what this world is like. And it's through the eyes of the, the, invest, the, the head detective who's in investigating the murder, and his name is Maddie. Maddie was leaning against a car hood a few doors down from the urban still life that had blossomed in front of 27 Eldridge. The shrine was a few days old now and threatened to span the width of the sidewalk from stoop to curb. The offerings, as far as he could tell, represented three of the worlds that made up the universe down here. Latino, young gifted in white, and geezer crackpot hippie. No word from the Chinese. There were dozens of lit botanica candles, a scattering of coins on a velvet cloth, a reed cross laid flat on a large round stone, a CD player running Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah on an endless loop, a video cassette of Mel Gibson's The Passion still sealed in its box, a paperback of Black Elk Speaks, some kind of unidentifiable white pelt, a few petrified-looking joints, bags of assorted herbs, coils of still-smoldering incense that gave off competing scents, and a jar of olive oil. Taped to the brick directly above all this was the front-page headshot of a smiling Isaac Marcus, that's a dead kid. From the first day's New York Post, the headline, his now notorious last words, not tonight, my man, alongside of which someone had cryptically put up an old tabloid photo of Willie Boskett, the 15-year-old urban boogie boy of the 1970s who famously killed someone on the subway, quote, just to see what it felt like. And next to that, a homemade handwritten rant, America Kekes, War on poverty is a war against the poor, the rest of it illegible. There were even more memorial tokens anchored to the tenement facade from flagpole-like riggings so that, so that they dangled directly above the murder spot. An open umbrella suspended upside down like a buttercup in which nestled a teddy bear and a beanbag eagle and a home-crafted tubular steel mobile whose desultory, whose desultory clanging on this nearly windless night truly sounded like morning. Thanks. Thanks, Richard. I, I realized that um, through then as the book, as the novel progresses, we also see how the shrine disintegrates and sort of... Yeah, goes, I can't find so, those pages. No, no. <laughs> oh, why not? I probably dog-eared some of them here, but... Um, yeah, but that's that's really great because that that the the metal mobile actually comes apart. So well, what happens like is a... three days later you go back <laughs> and uh, somebody stole the coins, or the uh, joints, or the the only, the, the only thing left of the mobile. Is, it's been scavenged by junkies, and uh, you know all, all the stuffed animals look like drowned rats. <laughs> you Not, know yeah. the the incense coils just look like spore. Yeah. So, so did you so so when you were when you got this idea of like a like something you wanted to investigate like this this neighborhood you wanted to be in the lower east side right so did you just did you go there to spend time there what what's like what happens well here here's how how you how it's been working for me the last few books i'm sort of interested in something that's going on and I, and sometimes it's tied into a specific area, you know. M given it's me, it's always urban. But I've always been interested in the Lower East Side, so I just started hanging out there, you know, just trying to like. I'm a great believer in osmosis. So first, I just sort of tried to get a feel for the area. I, I mean, I've been going down to the Lower East Side my entire life. I mean, my my father used to get 
he had a hosiery store in the Bronx, and he used to get his wholesale hosiery from the Orthodox Jew wholesalers that were always open on Sunday and closed on Saturday. Oh, right. But this time I'm going down there in earnest, you know, and... I look for people I hang out with, people who know more than I do or who do jobs that um, I'm interested in, in terms of possible characters. So that would be like, an, it seems like an easy first start might be a bartender in one of the yeah, places. Yeah, well, basically that... the, the, the three main people I hung out with were two, uh, two local detectives from that area and uh, a restaurant manager. Who one of my characters is is a thieving restaurant manager, and you know it's very. I got all the restaurant managers in this one place to sit down with me and teach me how to steal. Right, what they know, would do I, with a tippy now. Yeah, not the, uh, the, you know. I assume they are, they aren't stealing. Otherwise, they, they would say, I don't know. Right. You know, so, but um, you know, it, it, the thing with cops, I mean, I always I always like learning about a world th- with cops because you tend to see things that you would never see. You can walk around. And it's a little bit like you're standing on a beach staring at the ocean. All you see is the surface and the sun reflecting off that surface. Being in the back of a police car or responding to calls, um, it's like putting on a snorkel mask and sticking your head under that surface and all of a sudden realizing it's the Great Barrier Reef under there. And nobody would know that unless they have a snorkel mask. So the things that I tend to see from the back of a police car or go with them when a call comes in... I mean, you see human behavior in such extremists that a police presence is required. And it's always the part of the neighborhoods that you wouldn't ever dream of going to on your own. So, I mean, it's like like that quality of life vehicle. Yeah, well, that quality of life, guys. Yeah, I mean, they're they're like a a sort of a semi- Kind of humorous. Comic Rosen. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's kind of like a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and Finelli and Smith, you know, um... I mean, they're so my Greek chorus, and um, hmm. but they, you know, th- there's all this huggamugger about this murder, and, and and all the higher ups can't figure out what happened, and you know, th- these Abbott and Costello guys almost by accident, yeah, you know, uh, w- you know, win the lottery, right, <laughs> right. Um, so, so the language that you um, actually from. From being immersed in your your book, Richard, and and also actually from watching many episodes of The Wire, I found my language patterns changing. So the rhythm is sort of, I know, especially if you're doing radio and you can't really curse that much, Um, (laughs) but um, or when you're calling home, right? Hi, mom. but but the but the rhythms of the language are are so present in, present in here and and I thought it was interesting that in in a previous uh, conversation you had with someone um, you said oh the dialogue isn't what's driving this it's like you like it's the the plot through it and the and but the dialogue comes very natural to you it's a gift and could you talk about that a little well I mean you know the plot's the plot but I you know and I didn't do this consciously but I. It's it's a, a two things came together for me, which is I just love dialogue, you know. And um, as you get older, as a writer, it's like getting older as a householder. You tend to throw stuff out, and your books tend to become more streamlined as opposed to more verbose. And I think at this point, I was, I was trying subconsciously to to be as lean and spare in the storytelling, whereas in Clockers, I mean, it, it was. It was like Dombey and Sons. You know, I mean, it was like, you know, a big, giant, fat, encyclopedic, Dickensian thing. You know, it's like one of those Indian novels. And you Lawrence know. Durrell, like, describing the... Yeah, I mean, you know, hopefully less florid. But, <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I really, I, re- I really, I really kitchen sink that book. But, I mean, you know, the older you get, the, the, the more you realize, I don't need all that. You know, I, I know how to do more with less. So. Well, because I think you said Vonnegut makes it look simple, but that's what's yeah. not simple, well, and what, that's what, what's beautiful. What or, happens so. is, like, some people, you read it, and the easier it looks, the harder it was to make it look that easy. Mm-hmm. Except like, for Richard Brodigan. <laughs> <laughs> Why? How so? Uh, no, I don't know. I was just oh, okay. like some, like... <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry, you I know. started thinking about beer because I was like, yes, it's very hard to make the light gold ale. No. Think, people would think a stout's harder, oh, but it's well, not. Oh, well, yeah, no. I, I mean, it, it, Cause all the it's very hard kind of... to look easy. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, this book was like four years of hell to, and people could, it, it, it reads like a zip. I mean, yes, but super. It, it didn't write piece. like a zip. 
you know, I threw out a couple hundred pages. You did, yeah. yeah. How did you? How did you uh, cut those? How did? How did you cut those out? Like how not you... voluntarily. Um, I had an I had a very good editor. And, is it the uh, sa- is it the same editor you worked no, with? No, it's from... a new guy. So no, Farrah okay. Strauss. I've never been with them before. But you trusted him enough. I, well, you know, you have to trust. You got to pick one person and listen, because he who has two watches never knows what time it is. So you got a designated mm. guy you listen to, you know. And he, I had a whole. You know, the, the, the murdered kid's family, I mean, they were, like, much bigger in in the book. And he convinced me that you get their grief very quickly. And so very quickly, it feels redundant to keep hitting that note about they're insane, they're grieving, they're insane, they're grieving. We, he said, trust me, we got it. Mm. You know, and um, trust me. So I did. And, uh, and because, it, it turned out well. Because your goal was, you said, the colliding world. So yeah. that would be a smaller part of it. So well, that well, the, well, well the, the, the dead kid's father uh, lives in Riverdale, which is, a, you, know, a, a, you know, sort of like the northern Bronx. But people in Riverdale never consider themselves people from the Bronx. They're from Riverdale. Um, <laughs> it sounds pleasant. <laughs> see, the irony is that the, with this whole book is that I'm shifting gears here a little bit. The iron, the, I mean, the thing is, I have kids, and when they were in high school, they knew the Lower East Side better than I did because they knew where, where, which bars you don't get carded at. They knew where the best music is playing. They knew where to get the best gelato and all that stuff. But I think what they were a little clueless about was that five generations ago, their great-grandfather was mugging people about 100 yards from where they were buying their gelato. And in fact, they represented this massive 100-plus-year full circle back down to Ludlow Street. You know, and I'm... Right. And, and coming to it in a completely different way, yeah, like you, you said. Yeah, you, know, you know, they're, they're, yeah. You know, they're part of the Labo Emer squad, you know? And I go down there, and, you know, it's not for me anymore. I'm, I'm, too, I'm an old guy, you know? Um, but I, you always associate that place in your head with antiquity, but in fact, it's like the world's most hopping ghost town. And, you know, it's just, it's exploding. Yeah. Well, but you also said it looks more like afterbirth than rebirth, right? Yeah, That's what you because, were. Because, you know, everybody, everybody thinks it's a done deal, you know, but real estate is violence. And when, mm. when, when you, it's like tectonic plates of like, we've been here for 60 years. Well, say goodbye to Hollywood because here we come, you know. You know, that stuff, people do not go easily. Or they haven't heard the news that they're not supposed to be there anymore. And if you ask them, so where are you moving to? 